Hi, my name is Angela. I currently have no student loans. However, when I graduated from grad school, I was somewhere above 90,000. I am in California and very much for student loan forgiveness. My name is Kemi. My student loan amount is a little over 18 grand, and that was actually for grad school. My state is New York State, and I am a millennial. I've been paying on my student loans even for the past like two years. Um, through this whole pause until July of last year. So I haven't um, been paying on it for the past year and now, you know, since we're on pause. But uh, when we started on, you know, the pause, I think in like 2020, I paid for a full year and a half until July 2021. That's my student loan story. My name is Emily. I have about $170,000 in student loan debt, both private and federal. I am 47 years old. I live in Illinois, and I am for student loan forgiveness. Welcome to the Michelle is Money Hungry podcast, a podcast focused on having real and empathetic conversations about the intersection of money, policy, and politics. In my view, personal finance and money isn't just about, oh, I don't know, working hard. There's so much more to it. And so for the entire summer, yes, the entire summer, (laughs) I will be talking about the potential for student loan forgiveness, the cost of education, and Is the student loan forgiveness policy a complete overreach or is it necessary? My guests and I will talk about what gets lost in all the noise of politics, tweets, and everything in between on this topic. Is college really a part of the American dream and is the cost of college a problem? Are you planning to get away for the first time since COVID or want to go to that black sit scouting trip and use mileage points, but aren't sure how to keep your mileage points and associated cards organized? Or are you a financial independence, retire early enthusiast, buyer for the rest of us folks, and want to lower your travel costs by using credit card mileage programs? I've got the tool for you, and I'm so excited to partner with Travel Freely, a website and app that is a free and easy to use tool for folks interested in optimizing their mileage points for free travel and needing some support in figuring out the right credit card for their need. It's a free tool that helps you work through all the details of the cards that are out there when you are choosing your next one. For those of you who don't know, I used to have a ton of unsecured debt. And in fact, it actually took almost eight years to pay off over 60 grand in every kind of debt that you can imagine, credit cards, payday loans, and other random freaking debt. I don't even want to get into the student loan conversation. That's why I'm having the whole series. As a result of my debt experience, I was super skittish about ever getting another credit card again. And I hate to admit it, But when it was finally time to sign up for my first card, when I felt like it was ready and I was signing up for it, I chose badly. I hate this new credit card and I wish I had known about Travel Freely when making my first card decision after so many years. Travel Freely shares all of the important details that I just wasn't thinking about when signing up for that first card. Like I had some ideas of what I was thinking about, but 
I clearly chose badly. Yes, even though I talk about money all the time, I got this wrong. Travel Freely also reminds users when their annual fees are coming up and it doesn't require users to connect their sensitive personal information to the platform in order to use it. Travel Freely also reminds users when their annual fees are coming up and click on the link in my show notes to check it out. Again, this is a free app and resource and it helps users really figure out which card is actually a right fit for them. There are so many questions and emotions tied to the student loan forgiveness issue, issues related to fairness, accessibility, and the overall cost of higher education in America. As I spoke with my guests, One of the things that came up was, is college really a part of the American dream? So I decided to have these deeper, more nuanced conversations about what we're getting wrong and right about the student loan forgiveness policy that's been discussed for several years now. And I feel like the chatter is really increasing as we get closer quite candidly towards the next election cycle, which is this year. It's 2022 as this series goes live. But also as we get further away from the initial COVID crisis. So we are now in the, you know, moving towards the third year of dealing with this COVID crisis, 2020, 2021, 2022, we're in 2022. This is the third year. And so a lot of the protective measures that were put in place because of COVID, we're at a point where decisions have to be made. So I thought, let's talk about this. Let's give this topic more time. So here's a quick teaser of what my 10 guests and I will discuss during the upcoming 12 weeks. I hope you enjoy. Is it nine guests? I think it's nine guests. But anyway, enjoy, listen, and let me know what you think. I think it's hard because let's just say first off that student loan forgiveness will probably be part of any solution, but I think it needs to be tied in with fixing the root cause of the problem. How are student loans so toxic that we have to forgive them, Mm. but they're not toxic enough that we have to stop lending them, right? So we lend out about $90 billion in student loans a year. We're going to forgive the latest proposals as we're recording this are $10,000 for people making up to 125 a year, which is about $300 billion worth of student loans that we might forgive. But on the same token, we're going to give out another 92 billion to 100 billion this year. So in three years, we would have lent out exactly what we forgave. So something doesn't make sense to me in that regard, right? So my real solution is we need to we need to help those that need the assistance, right? So let's let's just look at the math, right? 80% of all student loan borrowers today, they don't really have any issues. They're not in delinquency. They're not in default. Let's not lie. They probably don't want their student loans, but that doesn't mean that they can't afford them or they weren't valuable or it's not working for them. Like it's just there. But you do have this segment of 10 to 15% and it couldn't go up to 20% or 18% in some years that are struggling with delinquency and default. And they get in this vicious cycle of trying to get out of it and rehabilitating and it's costly and it's costing them more than their loans, right? Because it's ruining their credit. It's costing them more in insurance. And there's a subset there that I think we definitely need to help. And maybe that includes loan forgiveness and other programs, such as one of my favorite ones that's coming is the Fresh Start program. So President Biden announced that when student loan repayments do resume, anyone that was in delinquency or default will now be current on their student loans. And honestly, I that's think huge. that's the that's the best relief of this whole pandemic because those are the real marginalized 
people that are struggling. And that's huge. And then we have to figure out how to be accountable to college costs. And so I will say that undergraduate student loans are also not typically the problem, right? Undergraduate student loans on the federal level have caps on them and the caps are relatively low. And as a result, it does control the borrowing and control the cost. Every single story you see in the media of $500,000 or a million dollars in student loans, every single one of those is graduate school loans or Parent PLUS loans. And you know why? Those two types of loans don't have caps. And so just like anything else, if you wanna control costs, you don't let people borrow it. And so I think there needs to be caps on how much you can borrow. I think we probably need to eliminate like Parent PLUS loans as a, in general. I think, you know, graduate school is also the profit center of most universities because of these graduate school loans. So we need to look at how do we control costs? And we can, of course, increase funding to higher education, state funding to higher education, maybe more free community college so people transfer. But if you want to focus on the student loan problem in general, it's like we have to cap it. We have to prevent people from borrowing it. And we also have to look at the private market for this stuff as well. Because, you know, if we do put caps on the federal marketplace, where are people going to go? They're going to go to that private marketplace. And right now, private student loans are a very tiny minority of loans. So there's about $1.7 trillion in total loans, only about $100 billion of it, which, I mean, still a crazy number, but only $100 billion of $1.7 trillion <laughs> is private debt. But that would grow if we cap federal and we don't do anything about private. So that probably means that you know more bankruptcies are going to be allowed, things like that, so that borrowers can get out and maybe the private banks will adjust their risk lending profile on that. So no, it's a long-winded answer, but it's nuanced. There's a lot of moving parts here on both the controlling costs and helping borrowers say, you really have two problems, right? You have the current higher education costs, and then you have, how do you help those that are stuck in the student loan system? But then they also overlap so much as well. So the program that I used was the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. This is a program that's available to people who do 10 or more years working in uh, the government, whether at the federal, state, or local level, or um, at a nonprofit organization. And it was a, a bipartisan bill that passed about 15 years ago. And the idea was to encourage people to go into public interest work if that's where their passion was and make it affordable to do so. And it really does do exactly that. I mentioned when I graduated, I had jobs available that would have paid around $200,000. And I instead chose to do the job that I wanted to do for $40,000 a year. And as we had a second kid and a third kid, and I was still the only source of income for our family and still a state employee not getting paid very well, it was tight and it was tough. And if this program hadn't been available, I don't know that I could have done it. And, you know, I'll just tell one story that I, I think of regularly about the choices that I had to make to do the type of work I want to do, to do public interest environmental work. There was one year when I met with my boss about a raise and in state government, you can't get big raises, but I was expecting a few extra thousand dollars in, in salary and it would have made a really big difference at the time. And I was told even though I was doing great work and working long longer hours than others and they wanted to give me more, the budget didn't allow it that year. And 
when I drove home from work that day, I pulled into our driveway and I was walking from our driveway to our, our back porch. And as I get to the back porch, there's a cardboard box there with peanut butter and eggs and some other food in it that the state of Vermont had delivered to our mm -hmm. house because as a family of five on the state government salary that I was making, we qualified for food assistance. And it was a really hard moment then that here was the state telling me there wasn't money to pay me a few thousand dollars more. And at the same time, they're sending food out to our doorstep so we can feed our kids. And yeah, I, I'll admit, I, I had a moment there where I really questioned if this was the right path and did a lot of soul searching. And ultimately, my, my partner and I talked about it and we kept on on that path. And I'm still on that path of doing public interest work. And it was the right choice for us, but it was tough. I speak to a lot of first generation students. I'm a first generation grad. And I always tell them, you know, they one student asked me at a program, she said, if you could do it all over again, would you go to college? And I said, of course I would. Mm. <laughs> you know, of course I would. I wouldn't be where I am if I didn't go to South Carolina State. And so what I tell them is that you can go to college. And I said, and sometimes student loan debt is a necessary evil because you have come from a place where nobody was able to save money because they were just trying to get, you know, trying to just survive. Mm -hmm. And if you only got a few scholarships, what I what I will tell you is that you don't have to go to the now some colleges are seventy five thousand dollars a year. You don't mm -hmm. have to go to the forty thousand dollars a year. How about let's go to the $20,000 a year college where, and that's including room and board and tuition. And you, maybe you find $10,000 in scholarships. So then you only have 10,000 student loan debt that first year. It's, it's about that. Yes, maybe student loans have to be a, a necessary evil, but it doesn't mean you have to take on tens of thousands of dollars of it just to go somewhere. What are some of your observations about the misconceptions or concerns that people are voicing about this policy? What are people getting wrong and what are they getting right? So the people who I would say the people who are, you know, against it, what they're getting wrong is understanding that this is something that was put in place like as a law. Like this is not something that's just off a whim. No, the public service loan forgiveness was put in the law. The, the borrowed defense that protected the for-profit scam colleges, those students that got scammed by that, this stuff was put into place. And so when people complain about it, and a lot of times it's older people complaining about it, I say, how I say to myself and I say to them, how would you feel <laughs> that 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 promise? that they had for Social Security and Medicare, where you paid into this system all these years. And they got to a point, they said, you know what? This ain't fair to everybody else. This is not fair to that 50 year old who can't be in Medicare. It is not fair to that 50 year old who can't get Social Security right now, but you getting it. So we're going to just stop it for everybody. They would lose their absolute mind. And this is the same thing. These individuals paid into this program and was made a promise. Now it's time for the promises to be kept. All the consumer hears is free money. They're like, yay. But there's downsides to that free money. The government and these politicians are utilizing this student loan forgiveness as a political football. The only reason they're talking about it is to get more votes. And I will tell you that the country cannot afford this, period. There is no way that the country can afford 
whether it's $50,000 or $10,000. And frankly, I'm disgusted by when politicians get up there and talk about this. It's not that I don't want people to feel financially secure, but using this to gain votes, this is not $50,000 or $10,000. This is billions of dollars or trillions of dollars when and where does it end and more importantly my problem with this conversation is where's the fairness what about the person that has spent 20 20 years paying off their loans for a school that they paid for in full and then a year later Somebody who chose not to pay off their loans gets it, gets it paid off by the government. To me, that's inherently wrong. The other problem is, and I'll use an example, Michelle, and I use this example. Two, two people living next to each other, they have similar jobs, similar salaries. They have each one went to a college, one went to a private school, one went to state school because he couldn't afford the private school. The state school guy went and paid off his student loans over the course of the last 15 years, paid it off in full, he's done. The private school neighbor went through and didn't pay off his debt, got deferrals, made smaller payments. He still has $50,000 to pay off. And They get the same salary, but one chose to play the system and keep the interest or the credit card or the student loans rolling. The other one did the right thing, paid off their debt. Now, the one that went to the fancy private school is getting a benefit. And who's paying? The guy that cuts each of their yards. The guy, their gardener is paying because that's who's going to end up paying for it. They are giving student loan relief to a person that benefited from the education, in theory, that is, has a higher paying job, in theory, and they're asking the people that couldn't go to school to pay for that that person's debt. That is inherently unfair for a whole host of reasons. That being said, you know, I have an issue with politicians using this in order for them to keep their 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 so-called power. Um, it's really, I'm passionate about this because I think it's wrong. I do have a plan that would make this simple, I believe. Uh, and I've actually run it across some politicians over the years, and they tend to agree. Instead of charging five, six, seven percent interest and waiving 10 or fifty thousand dollars. Why don't you just charge 2% interest on all federally federal student loans to accredited universities? Just 2% interest. Now, isn't that more fair than giving Mr. Smith $50,000 and asking his the guys that work for Mr. Smith to pay for it? That doesn't make sense to me. My average client is coming to me after they've already had their student loans for a decade or more, and they are finally in a financial position to try to tackle the debt. 
but then they look at it and they're shocked by how much interest has accrued, especially on federal student loans with capitalization, because every time you take a forbearance, they add that out that payment outstanding interest to your principal balance. So it's not a shock to me when someone says, oh, I only borrowed 50000 but now I owe $90,000 this time later. What the hell do I do? And mm-hmm. so they are in a better financial position, albeit it's 15 years after they graduated. And I think it sucks that they have to deal with this, but they're also, okay, what do I need to do? There's a lot of, okay, what is the best step for me? So to balance my paying back this debt and then also saving for retirement, building a family, buying a house, these things. So there's a lot of anxiety around being able to do it all. And we just work through what that looks like for them. I'll tell you that they come in, they come to me and they are stressed the fuck out. And then after <laughs> we talk through it and kind of walk through all the options, there's like, really, it's like that? And so there's a disbelief a little bit in what it is I'm telling them. But then after we walk through it all, they're like, oh, actually, I see the path moving forward. The biggest thing I have to tell people is that sometimes you have to learn to ignore the balance and pay attention to what the end goal is and how it will work for you. So if we go down this path, your loans will be forgiven. It's going to take some time. But would you rather try to pay off this debt as aggressively as possible? Or would you rather go ahead and do all these other things in your life, knowing that there's a plan to tackle the student loan debt? Now, once we walk through all of that, they, they feel much more at ease about their situation because they'll stress themselves out trying to think about it like a credit card debt or anything else where they try to pay it back. And, and But I'm like, you don't have the money to do this. You, you may make 120000 but if you owe 100000 for you to pay this off inside of a 10-year period, you're looking at a monthly payment of around $1,100. Can you do that and still provide for your mortgage, your house, your kids, things like that? And a lot of times the answer is no. So if you can't do that, then let's do this other thing. And then once we get past that part, that mental block of looking at student loan debt differently than other debts, things become a lot easier. I know someone who whose child graduated from college and has been looking for a year and they did that all-important major in STEM, computer-assisted technology, hotly in demand, but with the stock market crashing and tech companies have been a little bit more hesitant to hire. And here we have someone who's young and smart and bright and willing to work and did great in the interview and did everything, like everything perfect to the T and hasn't been able to work at all anywhere for a year. And that's so crushing to someone so young and to have followed all the advice. And, and this is where she is. That's something that we shouldn't do to our youth. We can't just rah-rah college as if we don't all know people who struggle to find work even when they do everything right. And colleges should get a lot of this front. Colleges should, we, we give colleges so much money and they need, really need to step up their game to make sure that people are graduating. The college graduation rates are ridiculously low, um, especially for lower income people. We need to make sure that colleges are doing their part to get their graduates in jobs, in good jobs. And instead, this seems like we are this, these $10,000, like maybe it will, I mean, I'm sure it will help some people. And I'm not unsympathetic to that, especially for people who hadn't graduated, who didn't graduate from college and do not get the benefits of a college degree. But what we need more than the $10,000 is not to have in 10 years, people graduating from good schools with the right degree with, you know, even, even more debt and two years without finding a job or three years and living at home and, and just not being able to start their lives. 
um, this is, it's just more of the same, right? We're just encouraging colleges to do exactly what they're doing and we need them to do something different. We need them to have some skin in the game to make sure that their graduates do well. And I think that there's, I think there's a lot of gaming of the system. And we had this too when in, in law school because it was difficult. It got a lot better in the years after I graduated, but we were recovering from a recession and law schools have a very, they're very particular about, um, on the US News and World Report ranking, about how many, what percentage of their graduates are employed after graduation. And a lot of law schools game this by hiring their own graduates. And yes, they are employed in a legal profession because it's a law school, but it's not the profession that they came in to get. And it's, it's not a profession that's beneficial to the students. It's just something that schools do to protect themselves. I'm sure colleges do the same thing. Um, and I, I don't think this necessarily counts as fraud in terms of student loan fraud cases, but we need to hold colleges accountable for this kind of thing. Uh, because this is the kind of thing that affects all of us. It affects our children, it affects our future youth that we're telling them this is a great deal. And then we're just covering up all the problems that they have when they're starting out the career. This is when they're so vulnerable. And, you know, they still have a few more years before all their hopes are dashed. I would hope, you know, like it should be like 25, not like 23. Yeah, I think so. I think this is actually a really interesting point to see where I think a lot of these conversations around loan forgiveness um, are frustrating to me, both in the direct, like the, the loan forgiveness conversation itself, and then the problem being so much harder to fix than it seems, right? Because if I'm advising the Department of Education, there's not a lot they can do without Congress. Ooh. And Congress is not going to do anything <laughs> in the near future. We are SOL. <laughs> <laughs> right? right? So a lot of the conversation around student loans, when I'm getting pushback from people um, about forgiveness generally, is people saying, you know, we, we shouldn't do forgiveness unless we can also fix the underlying problems. Or we shouldn't do forgiveness unless we can also, uh, you know, send a check to people who have already paid off their loans. Or instead of blanket forgiveness, we should do this other policy proposal that I've just come up with that's nuanced and perfect. And that's all great and right, <laughs> basically, right? Like we have to fix the underlying problems. But right now, the Department of Education, under existing law, has the power to forgive student loans. Um, 20 USC 1082A for the nerds. That gives the <laughs> Secretary of Education the power to, uh, to forgive loans held by the Department of Education. Any of those other proposals need to go, need, we need a new law. We need legislation to come from Congress. And if we need a new law, we need 60 votes in the Senate. And if we need 60 votes in the Senate, you're looking at finding an education proposal that can get the agreement of all 50 Democrats, which is very unlikely. And then even if you can achieve that, you need to find 10 Republicans who want to expand access to higher education. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's not possible. It's not in the realm of possibility in this decade, at least. Right. So I have a lot of thoughts about, you know, how we can address the education issue. I don't have many suggestions for how we can actually realistically 
um, in our current political reality solve this crisis? You know, the, the Senate is just, it is there, it is blocking the way on just about everything that would be useful in solving the underlying crisis. And I, I don't know how to get around that. One thing, Michelle, that we haven't really talked about with regards to student loan forgiveness and government public policy and things like that is the impact of student loan repayment programs by employers. And so, you know, there's been a lot of talk around free college and I know many employers uh, will do a tuition reimbursement. That was always a benefit in the tax code. But today more and more companies are starting to offer some amount of student loan repayment as a benefit. Now, typically these companies are white collar companies and stuff. So, you know, there's some probably equity and fairness issues around that too. But another way that student loan forgiveness could be achieved or people with student loans today could get some more help while waiting on government is to look at employers with these programs. And I know that these programs are held up for a long time because there was a lot of regulatory concerns about how the IRS would view this and, you know, would be treated as compensation and therefore taxable. And, and you know, and companies right now can do things like, well, for every dollar of student loan repayment you make, well, you know, companies can chip in $1 into your 401k on your behalf, right? So you can sort of pay down your debt while the company is helping you save. But but for a long time, the regulations around doing that kind of thing wasn't really clear. So student loan repayment as a benefit program is a relatively free uh, new phenomenon. But, but when we talk about like how to solve this problem, then another way to solve this problem really could be is let's work through the tax code to make student loan repayment as a benefit by companies more widely available, right? So I will tell you in my personal opinion, I really like the concept because people can choose where they go to work, right? Like you're not forced to work for company A versus company B and companies would have to compete for workers with different pays and benefits and things like that. And so, you know, this would, this would present a solution that could, that could apply to a lot of people and give people a lot of freedom of choice in terms of how they want to benefit from it. Right. And so I, I, think I love that, that. I love that because that, that, I could, feel, that could work. I actually, I really love that uh, framing of this because I think part of the problem with some of these other forgiveness solutions is they feel very draconian and very difficult to navigate around and that there is somewhat of a lack of freedom around what you can do. Um, I do have the opinion that many of these programs are a little excessive in terms of uh, how many years you need to be uh, in the program and things like that. But I love this idea of putting industry on notice and saying, hey, if you want people to be educated in such a way that they can even be competitive to work with you, you need to also think about the benefits that people will find compelling to say yes to work with you. Right, exactly. And this is not necessarily just a white collar thing, but, you know, many companies that look for tradespeople, you know, they're, you know, 
for a while now, there's been discussion about how there's a shortage of tradespeople, but a lot of companies now will pay for trade school for employees, right? And things like that. So, and, and trade school isn't always free. You have these benefits and, and it gives people the choice, you know, you're not necessarily forced to take on a career, a certain type of career, like a public service or a teacher loan forgiveness. If, if you know, if that's not your thing, that's not your thing, but this could be the average history major who works for a great company that has this loan forgiveness program and they could qualify for it right it 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 can work out pretty well if you know if it's done and so i think that um i think sometimes you know the focus on loan forgiveness is okay what's the government going to do what's the government going to do and perhaps one of the solutions is the government should set up the framework to allow companies to help come in and provide the solution it, as part of it. Right? I love to hear this. <laughs> and, and I feel like this is a solution that many American capitalists should be on board with because the market will dictate the success or not of a program like that. And I, I'm pretty convinced that many employees would find that very, very uh, compelling as a as a benefit to them when they're looking at businesses to say yes to. Forgive me, this, this may be more of a, of a rant than an answer. <laughs> I like rants, let's, <laughs> let's go. All right, so so first the, hey, I, I did what I had to do and I paid my loans. My answer to that would be congratulations for you. That's that's awesome. That, that is not my situation. That's not the situation for you know however many millions of borrowers that are out there. And we have to really take into context how how many people are dealing with this issue that may have also paid. Um, I've I've seen comments on Twitter, which is a terrible place <laughs> at times, where it's like, hey, you know, I paid off my debt in you know 1965. I paid my debt off in the 80s or whatever. And it's like, well, your minimum wage job paid for college. And college was much less expensive at that point in time. Now you're asking people to do what you did by getting the exact same amount of money from that minimum wage job as you had, but the cost of college has risen by 300% since then. So like the, the economic argument is if you're not for student loan uh, forgiveness, then you must be for higher, higher wages across the board so that people can actually pay their loans. But that's not what you're arguing for. You're arguing for people to suffer just because you had to suffer, which really doesn't make any sense. When we talk about, you know, medical cures and mir- miracles and things like that, or even the internet, I don't say, hey, son, I need you to go back and use, uh, use a dictionary by hand and encyclopedia just because you have Google now. <laughs> Like for what? <laughs> like why would I? Why would I force you to to go through the exact same thing if I know better and have the ability to do so? I'm going to try and make things better for other people. So that's that's one side of the hey, I pay my loans. Like congratulations, trophy for you, and that, that is an accomplishment. But also realize that you have also benefited too, because a lot of people will say, well, I don't benefit from this. This isn't fair. I would argue that because your loans were paid off and you, you strategized, you had enough income, you had all that stuff, you were able to buy a home before these prices took off. You were able to invest your money in whatever year that you paid the, those loans off and you were able to benefit. Whereas those who have not and have been struggling were not able to do so. And they were struggling and paying off the debt. And that's the other part of it. And I will say the last thing is we have this really strange assumption that people haven't been paying and that student loan forgiveness for at whatever amount assumes that I paid $0 this entire time, which is not mm. true. 
There are people who have paid, who took out 30, paid 50 and still have money left over. And if it were forgiven, it's like, hey, I still paid $50,000. This is not, it is a, a win for me, but the $50,000 that I paid before this pause, that's still lost money. I'm not getting a refund for that. And I think we really need to understand really the nuance of these conversations and talk about the reality. Because the, the last thing I'll mention too is that we, we, we never really talk about those who pay student loan debt, but didn't actually go or finish. That includes those who took out Parent PLUS loans for their kids to try and go, or those who had to drop out and take care of family members who are still on the hook for those loans. Okay. I, I felt that. I felt that. I felt that. Okay. <laughs> you know, if you go way, way back to, you know, biblical times, there's precedent for what were called debt jubilees, where after so many years, debt was forgiven in ancient Babylonia. Hammurabi, which is one of the most, I think, famous and, and well-known um, leaders that came out of that empire, he wiped away debt to win political favor from his constituents. So, you know, that, that that's an option. Um, but more recently in Iceland, following the financial collapse of 2008, the government there, I, I forget the, the exact percentage, but they eliminated a substantial amount of people's mortgages. They just wiped them clean. So there is precedent. It can be done. It's just a matter of, of willingness. So I would blanket, you know, give everyone the same equity, wipe their slates clean and and let's move on. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I'm excited to share this project with you and I'm looking forward to expanding the conversation around the student loan forgiveness policy. Also, producing a project like this takes a lot of time and a ton of work. Please support this work by clicking on my buy me a coffee link and contribute whatever it is you can. I truly appreciate it. Even if it's just a cup of coffee, as you know, I do a lot of my work from coffee shops. I truly appreciate your support and would love it if you shared this series with a friend. The next episode in this series is a general conversation about student loan forgiveness with Robert Farrington, founder of The College Investor. 